Growing up with three sisters and no brothers meant that I watched my fair share of chick flicks. Men and women are different in more ways than one, and one of the more obvious ways that manifests the difference between men and women is the kinds of movies that we like to watch and that we enjoy. I've had to begrudgingly sit through many romance movies. However, surprisingly, not every chick flick is so bad. I've actually been surprised over the course of my life how many romance stories I did enjoy, especially among the kind they commonly call rom-coms or romantic comedies. One could think of our sermon text today as a chick flick. Now, it's obviously not a flick. It's not a movie. It's a text. But its story is very much consistent with chick flick plots. As a matter of fact, many modern-day chick flicks follow the general story arc of today's story. In short, a beautiful, competent woman has somehow been hitched to an incompetent bad guy until some charming hunk comes along and saves the girl from marrying down, providing her a more compatible mate. Very, very common storyline. I know in this church we have a lot of The Office fans. Just think Jim, Pam, and Roy. This is the story arc of 1 Samuel 25. But the reason this chick flick is so entertaining is not owing so much to the exciting drama of the story, but because this is one that God has written. This boy-meets-girl tale is not really what we focus on. The romance is not really what we focus on. Rather, we are going to see what we can learn of God through this story. So I guess what I'm saying is that, believe it or not, you can learn good theology from chick flicks, especially when the Holy Spirit writes the script. Would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25? 1 Samuel 25, we continue in our sermon series through 1 Samuel. Because 1 Samuel 25 is such a long chapter and we are going to read the whole thing, we're going to break it up scene by scene, if you will. The text begins on a sad note. The text begins with uh, the great prophet Samuel, whom the book is named after dying. And it's kind of just said there's a side note and then the story moves on. Uh, Samuel's death is not so relevant for us today, but keep it in mind because it's going to become relevant before the end of 1 Samuel. But with that, we read 1 Samuel 25 together. Our first scene, what I'm calling Nabal's offense, is our longest scene. We are going to read verses 1 through 22 together. Would you follow along with me? For these are the very words of God. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. 
Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. And one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, show this, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. He is such a worthless man, no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and 200 skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail, or forgive me, let's stop there. That ends our first scene. How quickly men are capable of abandoning their principles. It's truly sad to see how we as human beings are so prone to so quickly fall into hypocrisy. Now, why do I say that? Because if you recall from last week, David is about to take everything he learned last week. Everything David taught us, our entire sermon that we covered last week, David is about to throw that away. Let's recap. While David is in the wilderness, struggling in the harsh terrain, he's in constant need of help. And him and his men really need help. And a golden opportunity has arisen for them to receive help. Because word on the street is that they're not far from a man named, far from a man named Nabal. And this rings a bell to David. Because David remembers something that 1 Samuel has left out to us up to this point. That at some time during David's treks in the wilderness, Nabal's shepherds were out in the field by themselves. And it was a dangerous wilderness for them to be out in. And so David's men, allegedly, not only from David's own testimony, but from the testimony of the shepherds, provided these men with constant protection. And they did so for free. Right? They could have made a trade. They certainly needed the sheep. Some of your sheep and we'll protect you. They didn't do that. Free of charge, they spent time and energy and resources protecting these men. And so David says, well, now here's a golden opportunity. We have done good to Nabal. And now here's his opportunity to return that favor. So David sends some of his young men to Nabal. But as the text tells us, he is an evil, foolish, hard-hearted man. And he refuses. 
He refuses to help. And so now David is prepared to take matters into his own hands. David is prepared to carry out vengeance. We learned last week not to take vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, but he is going to pour out vengeance against Saul's offense. Or forgive me, against Nabal's offense. Everything David said last week he would not do to Saul, he wants to now do to Nabal. How quickly we abandon our principles. But let me just remind us, though, that while David is, in fact, overreacting, he does have a right to be angry. The text is, the text is crystal clear that David has a right to be angry. Nabal's refusal to help David is a gross act of sinful, selfish behavior. Why do I say that? For uh, many, many reasons. First and foremost, it was both ancient Near East custom as well as biblical law to be hospitable and generous with your neighbor. He had a biblical obligation here. But more than that, the text went out of its way to remind us that Nabal is more than able to help. In other words, David was not asking for much. The text goes out of its way to tell us that Nabal is a man who was abundantly rich. He had plenty to give. And more than that, God, in God's providence, it just so happened that David approached them on a feast day. Why is that important? Well, important because before a feast, they would have gathered and stored and prepared a ton of food for the feast. So not only does Nabal have plenty to give, but the work's already been done. It's already stored away. It's already ready to go. The point that the text wants to emphasize is Nabal had plenty and it would not have been that big of a sacrifice. And additionally, the servants, when they approach Abigail, are very clear that Nabal spoke harshly with David's servants. That's an important detail. That reveals something to us about Nabal's heart. The words that came out of his mouth were lies. And his tone revealed that. Nabal's excuse if you remember, was, I don't want my servants to leave me. Lots of servants are fleeing from their masters, and if I give all their food away to some stranger, they're going to leave me. Right? Nabal, he's, he's concerned about his servants, right? But it's interesting because the servants didn't take that opinion. They wanted to help. And the servants told us that Nabal was harsh with David's men. And the reason that's important is because when a person wants to help somebody, but they just can't, it's, they just don't have the means to help them or, you know, maybe they just think there are other circumstances. Typically, they're much more empathetic when they say no. I'm really sorry. I, I really would love to help you, but I just can't. But that's not the tone Nabal takes. He's not empathetic. He's not sympathetic. He's harsh. His harshness tells us not that he can't help, not that he thinks he shouldn't help. It tells us he does not want to help. He's a selfish, selfish man. The text tells us at the very beginning that he's a selfish, evil man. And all of this is on top of the fact that he had somewhat of an obligation to help because David had helped him first. And by the way, the word Nabal in Hebrew actually means foolish. So it's probably a nickname. I'm not sure if his mother actually gave him that name. But I say all this to remind you the text is going out of its way to paint Nabal as the bad guy. Don't sympathize with him. Obviously, if some random person were to come up to you on the street and say, hey, I need you to give me food for my army of 600 men, you are not under an obligation to be able to meet that need. 
But the text is trying to tell us that Nabal's situation is different. He is under obligation and he is capable, but he just doesn't want to. David is overreacting, but he has a right to be mad. So let's see what happens. Scene two, this is Abigail's plea. Begin with me in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Much of 1 Samuel is about authority and kingdom. And therefore, we have spoken much throughout this sermon series of our duties to obey our authorities. But because it's about authority and kingdom and our duties to obey, it's also chock full of reminders that no human authority has an unqualified obedience. Sometimes obedience to men, not all the times, but sometimes obedience to men is disobedience to God. Abigail knows this. She knows this well. And that is why she deliberately disobeys her husband's decision and acts contrary to his will behind his back. She knows that doing what is right and saving innocent lives trumps submitting to her husband in this scenario. So she competently, courageously, and decisively leads the servants in bringing aid to David. After hearing of the harm that's about to fall upon her and her entire household, she quickly gathers the food that David asked for and brings it to David to make an offering and to stay his hand. Abigail then in this text stands as an intercessor between her family and David. She appeases David's wrath by asking that all the guilt be placed onto her and providing a food offering that he required. She even affirmed him as the prince of Israel and she reminded him of all of God's promises to him and she warned him not to spoil those promises by taking the throne with a guilty conscience having to look back and know that before I became king of Israel I tried to take matters into my own hand and I killed innocent people. She's protecting David from spoiling these promises that God has given to him. 
So Abigail makes a plea as the intercessor. And let's see how David responds to this mediator. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in a ball so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See that I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Abigail not only saved Nabal from David, Abigail saved David from David. David is convinced by her words that he was about to embark upon grave sin. David sees how the Lord used this beautiful and brilliant woman to stop David. So David relents of seeking vengeance and he obeys Abigail's wise counsel and he leaves vengeance to the Lord. He promises not to attack her household and he receives her offering. But that's not the end. God is going to vindicate Abigail's counsel. We know Abigail was wise. We know Abigail was right because God proves her right. Look at verse 36 with me. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. After Nabal sobers up from a drunken night of gluttony, the text tells us he, he partied as a king. Why did it make sure to tell us that? It's reminding us yet again, he had plenty to give. Even after Abigail brings a ton of food to David, he still has enough food to party like a king. And he gets drunk, and he's a glutton, and Abigail is too wise to bring bad news to an evil, stubborn man when he's drunk. So she waits until morning when he's sobered up. She tells him what happens. And when she tells him, some kind of internal medical condition falls upon him. The SV uses a metaphor here. Scholars will debate the precise nature of what happened. Most people think he probably had a stroke. But the specific medical diagnosis is really not what's important. What's important is that as soon as Nabal is forced to face the facts of what his wife did, he has some kind of internal medical condition that turns him into a vegetable. And then 10 days later, he dies. God proves Abigail right. David did not need to lay a hand on Nabal. God would judge his enemies. So God takes out Nabal and David's hands are clean. That's the wisdom of Abigail. But no chick flick would be complete without a proposal. So let's finish off the story with the proposal. Verse 39. When David had heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insults I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. 
And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Mishal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. After Nabal is dead, David cannot help but keep thinking about this beautiful, competent woman. He sees how much he needs a woman like that by his side. And now that she is a widow, he proposes and she gladly accepts, which makes David now the rightful owner of all of Nabal's stuff, which is some irony there. And so our love story is complete, though it is a little tainted, right? There's the elephant in the room, if you will. Uh, Abigail is not David's only wife at this point. We're not talking about Michal because Michal was given away out of spite. Saul hates David, so he gave his wife away. But apparently David is already married up, so it's not a perfect love story. Thankfully, not many of Hollywood's love stories end in polygamy, but I think we all know that's coming soon. But let's do what we came here to do today. There's a long story. We needed to process it. But why are we really here? We're really here to see, can we learn theology from a chick flick? What is there to be learned of God through a romance story? And I have given us four incredibly important theological gold nuggets, if you will, that we can dig out of this chick flick. Four theological themes that we learn from our love story. The first one It's the importance of generosity. God has a heart for generosity. Perhaps the most obvious concept of this text is the issue of generosity. And I think that it serves as an opportunity for all of us, myself included. I'm not preaching down to you. All of us to really examine whether there is room in our lives to be more generous than we are. More hospitable than we are. I'm not trying to teach a poverty gospel sermon where you're only holy if you sell all of your stuff and you live in a cave and you have no possessions. I'm not saying that. I'm not asking you to take food away from your children so that other people can eat. But if we're honest with ourselves, from a global historical perspective, we are some of the richest people that have ever lived. Existing within a country, the richest country that has ever existed on the face of the earth. So I think it's appropriate for us to stop every now and then and consider and wonder, could I perhaps be more generous with my stuff than I am? Is there room in my life for more generosity? Keep in mind that this same principle that breeds material generosity is what also breeds spiritual generosity. And I say that because what was the primary fuel that lit David's anger? It wasn't just that Nabal didn't help. It was the fact that David had helped first and then Nabal refused to help. How much more should we be givers when we know we are receivers? That's the principle of the text. And that principle applies not just to material things, but to spiritual things as well. Why do I say that? Well, because we have texts like Colossians 3.13, which says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We have other texts like 1 John 4.19, which says, We love because he first loved us. The reason we forgive people is because we're a forgiven people. The reason we love people is because we're a beloved people. 
We are receivers. So who are we not to give? If we have received, who are we to withhold? That's the principle that we learn from 1 Samuel 25. That you need to be generous with your material possessions and your spiritual. Be generous in love. Be generous in forgiveness. Be generous with your stuff. Why? Because you first received those things. God did good to you first. So who are we to be like Nabal and not do good in response? Before we move on, let me also remind you that part of how we practice material generosity is through our tithes and offerings. In tithing, you take some of the blessings that were first given to you by God and you give back a small portion of those blessings. Now, I do not bring this up to scold you. Quite the contrary, I intentionally wrote this rabbit trail into my notes to thank you. 2021 was a very good year for our church financially. And so I just want to thank you for your generosity. Thank you. And exhort you to keep up the good work in that area. We learn of the importance of generosity. The second thing we also learn, very, very important, very obvious in the text, the glory of a godly woman. The glory of a godly woman. First Samuel has no shortage of heroic, godly women. The entire book opens up with who? Do you remember? Hannah. I remember being so excited to preach through 1 Samuel because I was so excited to start off the bat with Hannah. 25 chapters later, after that amazing woman we learned of in Hannah, we have encountered another incredible woman of God, Abigail. Now, we do not have time to go back and reread everything Abigail did and said, but it's safe to summarize her, to borrow kind of a, a popular phrase from the evangelical world, it's safe to summarize her as a true Proverbs 31 woman. Abigail here demonstrates much Proverbs 31 glory. In other words, she serves as an incredible role model for all Christian women everywhere. In my summation, and I was very careful in the words that I used here as I worked through the text, Abigail is presented in this text as reasonable, discerning, decisive, courageous, efficient, empathetic, persuasive, humble, and probably my favorite, theological. And this is no small point. This is no pat on the head to the girls. Abigail is the hero of this text. She's the protagonist. She's the main character of this text. This whole text is about her. She saves the day. She straightens out the men. It's the servants who come running to her for counsel and guidance and leadership. She's the hero. So may her example remind all of the women at Redeemer Christian Fellowship to never underestimate the value you bring, not just to your household, but to God's household. The church needs your gifts. That's what we learned from 1 Samuel 25. We need the feminine gifts. We need your reasonableness, your discernment, your decisiveness, your courage, your kindness, your persuasiveness, your humility. We need your knowledge of God. You godly women are an indispensable glory, both to your families and to the kingdom of God. The glory of a godly woman. We learn a third thing in this text. The faithfulness of God. Our God is a faithful God. The text points out God's faithfulness in two ways. It points it out through his promises and through his providence through his promises and through his providence. Look with me at his promises. Verse 28, if you will, again. 
Look with me again at verse 28 through 31. Hear Hannah's reminders to David. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail knows and is bringing to David's mind what he should have been already remembering. The promises of God, that God will fulfill his promises to David. Nabal can't stop that. Nabal can't get in the way of the promises of God. Why is David so upset? And by the way, this, the text gives us a foreshadow of God's faithfulness when he kills Nabal. Right? Because Abigail speaks in broad terms. She says, God's going to take care of Nabal, and he has promised you he's going to take care of all of your enemies. Not just him, all of your enemies. And God gives us a little foresight of his faithfulness by immediately killing Nabal. What does you think that told David about who would take care of Saul? Remember last week, David said, I'm not going to be the one to kill Saul. I'll leave that to God. What promise, what, what confidence does David have that God will actually take care of Saul? Well, he did it to Nabal. Makes you wonder what might happen to Saul at the end of the book. God fulfills his promises. And does that not encourage us too? Do we not serve the same God as David? Does this not also remind us that God will fulfill all of the promises that he has made to his church just as he did to all his promises to David? Our God is a faithful God who fulfills his promises. And he's able to do that because he's so faithful in his providence. His faithfulness is on display in his providential leanings. What is providence? Remember, it's the way that God controls the world. God is faithful in his providential control, which is how he's able to fulfill his promises. Look at verse 32 through 34. David knows this. David makes this connection. How does David respond when he is reminded of God's faithfulness in his promises? He responds with God's providence. 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working out salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in the ball so much as one male. What's interesting in this text is that David rightly sees two realities that many Christians think are contradictory that actually fit perfectly together. And that is that David attributes this meeting, this meeting between him and Abigail, which stayed his hand and changed his heart. He attributes the behaviors, the choices, both to the people who made them and to the God above them. He tells us in the text explicitly that Abigail is the one who came to him and that Abigail is the one who stayed his hand. But then he immediately turns around and right away says, God sent you and God stayed my hand. 
David sees that while our choices are ours, God doesn't fill up our brains and make us do things. Right? It's not like Abigail was like, what's happening? God's making me prepare the donkeys. I don't want to do this. It was her choice. Uncompelled, uncore, she made a free will choice and she went. And she is the one who through her choice and her actions changed David's mind. And then when David stepped back and reflects, he says, yes, that happened. But what was happening simultaneously? God was sending you. God was moving your feet. God was giving you the words to say, God was changing my heart. David understands that our choices and God's providence always line up. God is the one who guides our steps. So who is it that changed David's heart, Abigail or God? Yes. Who is it that chose to go meet David? Was it Abigail or God? Yes. Abigail chose to go and God sent her. It was God working in this situation. It was God bringing Abigail to David. It was God softening David's heart. David sees God as faithful to fulfill his promises through his providence. And so we can all hope in this, that God is in control of our lives, working all things for our good. That's our hope. Don't you see the faithfulness of God in this text? But lastly, this is my favorite, and I would argue it's the most important of all the theological themes. The last thing we see, point number four, is this. The power of intercession. The power of intercession. In this text, Abigail serves as an intercessor or a mediator. She stands between the wrath of David and her family, and she pleads forgiveness on behalf of others. She stands on behalf of a sinful man who deserves David's wrath. She does not merely ask for forgiveness, but she brings an offering. She doesn't just ask to be forgiven. She asks to be forgiven, and she brings an offering that satisfies the justice of the situation. You see, she doesn't just satisfy David's wrath. She satisfies what's right. She makes it right. And in this is a very tiny, very small, but very important picture of the gospel. This is the gospel. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Hopefully not a section you've never heard before. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When the wrath of God was marching through the mountains on its way to destroy you, Christ came and met it halfway with a satisfactory offering on behalf of an unsatisfactory people. Jesus Christ has propitiated the wrath of God. What does that word mean in the text? A propitiation is an appeasement. In the verb form, to 
propitiate as a verb. It means to appease or to send away. Abigail took the wrath of David and sent it away. And what Jesus Christ does is he stands between us and God. He stands between us and the wrath of God that we deserve. And he takes that wrath and he sends it away. By his blood, through the offering that he brings, he sends it away. See, he doesn't just come and plead and ask for forgiveness. He provides an offering so that forgiveness can be just. And that is why the text goes on to say, God is not just the justifier of those who believe, but he is just. He is just and the justifier. Why is that the case? He's the justifier because he's forgiven us. But he's just because Jesus did not just come and ask for forgiveness. He paid for it. He made it right. He brought a satisfactory offering in his blood so that God could both forgive us and justice would not be compromised. That's what happened with Abigail. David and his men did not go home hungry. She made it right. And she pled for forgiveness. And that's what Jesus Christ does on our behalf. He's our perfect mediator who propitiates the wrath of God and satisfies the law. And that is why we sing before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me